Good morning. How are we doing, church? Ooh, I just got louder. I'll try not to be too loud. But loud enough. There's a fine line there. Thank you for uh, letting me be gone last week. I heard Rob did a good job for us and grateful for people to step in. And we got to be with a lot of other ministers and uh, families that are in ministry in the Churches of Christ for the Pacific Northwest. So uh, we had a good time. And we were at the Cannon Beach Christian Conference Center and got to eat a little yummy food. Lots of good uh, fellowship and uh, prayer time, worship. So, but we are thankful to be back with you this morning. And we're continuing our series in Deuteronomy, which again, it just strikes me how relevant it is uh, to our situations today. And it's a strange thing because it's a, it's, it's a text that is so old, it's so difficult to understand, it's so politically incorrect, and it's so unapologetic about it, and yet I find myself moved to examine my own heart again and again. So we're going to continue to dig deeper into the first three chapters of Deuteronomy. Read chapters one and three, one through three at your home, and uh, there's so much good content in there. So we've already talked about in Deuteronomy and the sermon series how Deuteronomy is actually a collection of sermons. It's sermons of Moses, and it's homiletical in nature, and we've talked about how Deuteronomy, it is both reviewing of the past, speaking to the present, and anticipating the future. It is a bridge book that connects what happens before this, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy itself. Deuteronomy is that bridge from uh, those ancient books to Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. It sets the agenda for all of those things that happen. So in some ways, Deuteronomy is also like a last will and testament to a new generation. A new generation who's taking the reins, and they are going to be the ones now to finally cross the Jordan River and enter into the Promised Land. And Moses... In, in the first three chapters, he has a message for the new generation. And his message is this. Do better than the generation that went before you. Do better than the generation that went before you. How many of you have looked at mistakes your parents made and said to yourself, I'm never going to do such and such. I'm going to do things way better than that. I get some blank looks. Have none of you done this? I did this all the time. And I found out, you know, there are certain things that I'm just like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do things better than that. I want to do... And... Maybe you do some things better, and you do some things different, but as you get a little bit more life under your belt, if you have any level of self-awareness at all, uh, you realize, wait a sec, 
maybe I've made my own fair share of mistakes. And maybe they're different than some of the mistakes that those who were before me made. Um, you know, as you grow up, I realized at some point, it's kind of interesting the cycle that you go through. Like, your parents are your heroes. And then something switches, and your parents can do nothing right. And it's, I don't know why we rig the game that way, and why that seems to be kind of a, a universal truth. It's some of that trying to gain our own footing and make a way for ourselves and gain our own independence. Um, as a young man, I remember being able to point out my parents' faults and mistakes, and uh, I did that even while in my own bad behavior, I, I largely justified where I was as beyond reproach, and, well, I'm not going to do it that way. I know better. I, I'm so sorry, Mom and Dad. I, I was a difficult teenager. Not because I was rebellious in every way, but my rebellion was, they would tell me this is the way it's going to be or not, and, you know, I just shrugged my shoulders and I did whatever I wanted. I did it my way, the way I wanted. But as you grow up, you grow up in your own marriage, you grow up raising your own children, you grow up in your own friendships, you grow up in your own work career. Now my judgment of the generations before me, they're tempered by my own experiences. I'm one who has now raised a new generation after me who can clearly tell you all about my faults and mistakes. So the question before us this morning is this. How do you break generational sins? How do you break generational sins? Have you ever witnessed or experienced something of the way sin affects us over the course of multiple generations? We've seen this in different ways. Abusers raise abusers. Addicts raise addicts. Bullies raise bullies. People with dysfunctional approaches to managing people through anger and attack and withdrawal. Cycles of pride, cycles of self-centeredness, selfishness, narcissism, neglect, neglect. The dynamics of the ways that people, how they use guilt and manipulation. You know, I, I look at these things and I, and I fight against them and I... I am resolved in myself. I am going to do things better. And yet I realize I have made my own messes as well. And so Moses' answer to this question, how do you break generational sins? 
remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Obey the Lord. Cling to the Lord. Do not forget the Lord your God. That is the only hope any of us has to do things better. Deuteronomy chapters 1 through 3, it is a history lesson meant to instruct the current and future generations of how to do things right, how to do things better. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, And now, Israel, listen carefully to these decrees and regulations that I am about to teach you. Obey them so that you may live, so that you may enter and occupy the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Watch out. Be careful never to forget what you yourself have seen. Do not let these memories escape from your mind as long as you live. And be sure to pass them on to your children and your grandchildren. In clinging to the Lord our God, the sins of our past, they're cut off. And the blessings of God, they pass on from one generation to another. Thoughtful, balanced, and accurate commemoration of the past is crucial to our spiritual progress. Exposing and preventing the repetition of spiritually hazardous generation cycles. How does Moses begin the book of Deuteronomy? He begins it with a history lesson. Revisiting the events, the places of the past 40 years with the current generation in order to prepare that new generation of people to be able to succeed when they cross over the Jordan River. Moses insists that the key to their success lies in learning from and avoiding the mistakes of the past that went before them. Do we learn those lessons? We are blessed by the generations that have passed before us. But we have a responsibility, each of us, in whatever generation you are in, to remember the Lord your God and to obey him above all else, above all others. As you read through these first three chapters, you can't help but notice Moses' preoccupation with places and people and names of people. It's all that stuff that's so hard for us to pronounce, and we don't have a clue who it is or where in the world it is or what he's talking about. But these are things and people and places that this generation, they remembered and they knew about it and they experienced these places firsthand. So this wilderness wanderings, 
All of these times and places and locations that Moses mentions all have a story. A story of a success. A story of a failure. What happened here? What happened here? What did the Lord do at this place? And where did they... What was this, why does this line go across the water there? What was that about? There's an important place. All of these stories. Stories of something good, stories of something bad. A story that is meant to teach a lesson. A lesson about vices to be avoided. Lessons about where you need to place your hope. Lessons about the importance of faith. Lessons about the kind of virtues that are honored among us and are cultivated among us. A story of our past failures. And the stories of the successes of those who went before us as well. Moses is using history lessons to encourage faithfulness in the new generation. History that is forgotten is history that's doomed to be repeated. And a real tragedy of our time, I would say, is not that people make mistakes. Because mistakes happen. We all make mistakes. We all sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The real tragedy is that we make these same mistakes over and over and over and over and over again. We don't reflect on them. We don't learn from them. We don't learn our lessons well. And these cycles of brokenness can just keep on going like a bad record spinning around. We're so quick to play the victim card, to talk about our mommy and daddy issues, or so-and-so did this to me, or this no good so-and-so I was married to did this, and and we're slow to own our own stuff in that. We're slow to own up to our own stinking thinking. We're slow to admit our own faults and our own sins. You know, one of the ways that the Holy Spirit uses the stories of the Bible, you think about Bible stories. Some of the authenticity of the Bible is proven in just how crazy it is. These people were crazy. You want to talk about dysfunction? You want to talk about some nasty sins? You read through the Bible, front to back, and it's all of this brokenness and all of this beauty. And the only one who does things perfectly every time is who? The Lord our God. And the Word that became flesh and came and dwelt among us. Thousands of years after the time that Moses wrote this, 
I can read this ancient history lesson and I can draw implications from it that apply to my current life here in this day and age as your minister at the Eugene Church of Christ. I too can remember the Lord my God so that it will go well with me in the land and circumstances I inhabit. Another interesting thing I want to point out is that uh, Moses addresses the current generation as if they were the ones who made the mistakes of the generation before them. Moses addresses the wilderness wandering generation, those who were born on the road, as if they were the ones who had left Egypt and received the covenant at Sinai. But really, they were just kids when all this was happening. Moses speaks to the new generation as if they were the ones that had received all of those past covenants and those past miracles. And he addressed them as the ones who failed at Kedish Barnea. And it wasn't actually them that failed. This is stuff that their parents did. They were born after that even. So what is this sin that happened at Kadesh Barnea? What happened there? Moses recounts that history. When we arrived at Kadesh Barnea, I said to you, you have now reached the hill country of the Amorites that the Lord our God is giving us. Look, he has placed the land in front of you. Go and occupy it as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. That is the word of God that came to Israel. But what does Israel do at that place? They want to send out scouts to go and spy out the land. Seems reasonable. Show us the, the right roads to take. Show us the... And even Moses agrees, and he thinks it's reasonable. And I wonder if this also, too, might be some of the sin that keeps Moses from being able to enter the promised land. Because what happens is, after the Lord says, go take the land, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged, what do they do? They do a feasibility study. They send out representatives to tell them whether or not, well, this is a good idea or not. Is, is, what God is, at, is what God asking us to do, is this a reasonable thing or not? We're just doing our due diligence. And then the scouts come back and they report, yes, it's a good land. But how many of the 12 scouts that went in there actually advised the leaders of Israel and the people of Israel? How many of them advised them to do what the Lord their God had commanded them to do? Out of 12, two. 
You know their names? Joshua, who becomes the future leader of Israel in Moses' place, and a guy named Caleb. We're going to talk about Caleb next week. He's an interesting guy. And they listened to not those two that agreed with God, but they listened to the other ten. Deuteronomy 126 through 128, But you rebelled against the command, the Lord your God, and you refused to go in. You complained in your tents and said, The Lord must hate us. That's why he brought us here from Egypt, to hand us over to the Amorites to be slaughtered. Where can we go? Our brothers have demoralized us with their report. They tell us, the people of the land are taller and more powerful than we are, and their towns are large with walls rising high into the sky. And we even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Can't do it. It's impossible. So they believe the words of men over the word of God. They completely disregard everything that the Lord had done to bring them to that point. His provision, his loving kindness, his protection, his guidance. And now they call it hatred. As if God had brought them to this place to do evil things to them. I think, wow, how ungrateful and faithless could they be? And Moses goes on, but I said to you, hey, don't be shocked or afraid of them. The Lord your God is going ahead of you. He will fight for you just as you saw him do in Egypt. And you saw how the Lord your God cared for you all the way, all along the way as you traveled through the wilderness, just as a father cares for his child. Now he has brought you to this place. Why does God call this generation a sinful generation? Think about what these people had been through and what they had seen. They had witnessed the plagues and the Passover in Egypt. They had crossed the Red Sea, a sea divided in front of them, and they walked across as on dry land. They see the armies of Pharaoh destroyed. They are led every day by a pillar of cloud and every night with a pillar of fire. Where is God? Well, he's right there. Where are we supposed to go? Well, we need to follow these manifestations. They needed food. They get all the food they need. Manna, quail. There's no water here. 
Well, let's tap on this rock. Look, there's water. Oh, this water's bitter. Look, now the water's sweet. Their feet didn't swell and their shoes didn't wear out. What generation, let me ask you this, what generation saw more miracles and wonders from God than this generation? The generation of those that the Lord rescued out of the land of Egypt. Who had seen more miracles than these people? And yet, how faithless do they act? Oh, those are big, those people are big. Did you see the size of those walls? makes me ask the question, how could a people see and experience so much and be blessed so much and be so profoundly faithless and ungrateful? But here's the thing. Before you are too condemning of the generation that has gone before you, You too need to realize the ways that you are tempted to act faithlessly. These people had been given so much. Have we been given so much? We have the full story of what God was going to accomplish through Jesus Christ. Who, who's been more, received more material blessings? than modern Americans. We're fat, we're comfortable. How many of us have ever had to live as a slave? How many of us have been pursued by the armies of foreign nations? How many of us have had to eat the exact same food day after day after day? When was the last time I tried to make a pair of shoes need to last for 40 years? I've got ones that are about 10 years old, but I can't wear them in public anymore on my wife's orders. When was the last time I was dying of thirst and starving to death? When was the last time I lived as a literal nomad with no place to call my home? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. These people had seen so much and been given so much. And they ignore the Lord their God and they give him no credit at all. And they are not willing to trust in him. Well, the Lord is so angry with this sin, sinful generation at Sinai that he will not let them enter the promised land. They don't get to go in. And it takes 38 years for that generation of warriors and fighters to die away. God says this to him: It's not going to be you. I will give the land to your little ones, your innocent children. You were afraid they would be captured but they will be the ones to occupy it. 
As for you, you turn around and go back through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And then when they hear that, they're like, whoa, 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 okay, okay, we'll do what you said. We'll go take the land. And Moses is like, it's too late. The Lord's not going to fight for you anymore. And they're like, we got this. We're going to do this now. We don't want to go back. And they go, and they're whipped up, beat up bad. Soldiers annihilated, killed, driven away. Because the Lord is not fighting for them now. They had that chance. So they slowly then leave, and they're defeated, and they wander around in this little area of the world for 38 years. And it's not a very pretty country, that area of the world. It's not a place that you would think, oh, this is lush and green like the Willamette Valley. You just drop seeds in the ground and stuff grows. And So the sin of Kadesh Barnea is that these people from Sinai, they don't believe the Lord their God. And they don't remember their history. But where is Moses when he's telling the story? He is telling this story from here. From this Transjordan area on the east side of the Jordan River. He's telling the little kids that were here and the kids not born yet. He's addressing them as if they are this generation. But really, they're the people who are standing there on the edge of the promised land, looking in. And this history lesson is this. Are you going to remember the Lord your God or not? Why does Moses address the new generation as if they were their parents? the ones who had failed at Kadesh Barnea? I think it says something about the way faith works. Moses maybe was making the point that your faith in God can never be secondhand. Your faith in God can never be secondhand. We are all in our own way a people who are poised looking into what we think is a promised land. What decisions are we going to make? What are our victories going to be? What are our failures going to look like? So even though it was the parents' generation who left Egypt and received the covenant commandments at Sinai, they now stand in their parents' story. They stand in their parents' legacy. They stand in their parents' place with the same decision that their parents had. The lessons that their parents had to learn are now their lessons as well. The promises that God made are now their promises as well. 
And you know what? This continues all the way down to us as well. We're people who are abnormally born, grafted into this story. We are grafted into this story through our faith in Jesus Christ and by his blood. To the point that I read the stories of Moses in Deuteronomy, and I know that the history lessons that I read there, those are for me as well. Am I going to cling to the Lord my God like that? Am I going to trust him like that? Am I going to be faithful like that? Or am I going to forget? Am I going to be faithless? Am I going to turn back and say, it's impossible, it's too hard? How well did this generation learn the history lesson that Moses gave them? Because they were indeed here, and they went over, and they took over things all over there. I'm sure glad they learned that lesson well, and they never forgot the Lord, and they never sinned again once they crossed the Jordan. How long does it take before they sin again against the Lord their God? Sometimes they're bold and courageous. Sometimes they are obedient. But did crossing the Jordan and enter the pro- entering the promised land, did it suddenly fix everything that was broken? How long did it take for them to start to doubt God and forget about God and do things my way, do things in the power of my own hand, look at myself and say, hey, I've done pretty well for myself. Look at this. Vineyards I didn't plant. Oh, I didn't build that house. I just, I just walked in. It was empty. And to close today, I want to ask this question. Where's your promised land? If you were to articulate, where is your promised land? Is it your job? Is it your circumstances? Is it your family? Is it Eugene? Is Eugene, Oregon the promised land? That's a tough one to get my mind around. We tend to think of the promised land in terms of geography, in terms of what I can accumulate, in terms of wealth I collect, in terms of the buildings I get to live in, in terms of the food I get to eat, in terms of the clothing on my back. But the lesson of the Bible that Jesus really teaches us is that our true promised land is about a relationship. You saw how the Lord your God cared for you. All along the way as you traveled through the wilderness, just as a father cares for his child. And now he has brought you to this place. Do you trust God like that?
That is the true legacy of a promised land, is that we serve a God who loves us like that and takes care of us like that. See, the true fulfillment of the promise of the fam- the, the, the true fulfillment of the promise of the promised land, rubber, baby, buggy, bumpers. The true fulfillment of the promised land is the kingdom of God, I would say. It's the kingdom of God. And the promise of the kingdom of God is that we have a heavenly father who loves for us and cares for us like a father cares for his children. And this is what Jesus came and became flesh and grew up. This is what he had to teach us. The history lesson that we need to learn the most is that we need to seek the Lord. We need to obey the Lord. We need to trust the Lord. We need to serve the Lord. We need to cling to the Lord. That's where our salvation lies. That is our promised land. It is a relationship. Hundreds of years after Moses gave this history lesson to this generation poised to cross the Jordan River and take the promised land, hundreds of years in that same promised land, Jesus is talking to this lady. He's not supposed to be talking to her. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. And he says this to her. Believe me, dear woman. The time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That is the geography and the place, and the circumstances, and the relationship that we need to be the most concerned about. If you have that kind of relationship with God, what does any of the rest of it matter? And what if you have everything else and you don't have a relationship with God? No matter what your promised land looks like, it is a hell if the Lord your God is not there with you. All right, that's our lesson. Tough history from Deuteronomy. But I think that's her hopeful invitation for us as well. So uh, we always offer an invitation to put on the Lord in baptism or um, if you would like the prayers of this church, uh, you can find me right up here. I'm going to hand things over to Jonathan now, and uh, we are going to go ahead and sing our invitation song together. Will you please stand?